Hi, my name is Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way Part-Time Pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the Part-Time Pilot audio ground school podcast welcome into the part-time pilot audio ground school podcast i'm your host nick smith and i go over my online ground school in audio for you guys completely free so hopefully you guys out there are finding this useful and having a good day whatever it is you're doing and hopefully your flight training and your training is going fantastic so let's get to it today we have a few lessons a few smaller lessons we're going to cover seat belts and harnesses and those regulations right-of-way regulations and minimum safe altitude so if you're following along in the online ground school it's section eight on limitations and more regulations of your step one course private pilot lesson. So go into that course, go to section eight, and we're gonna cover lessons three, four, and five, starting with seatbelts and harnesses. Now, I don't have too many announcements. We The deadline for our $1,000 scholarship was yesterday. So if you're looking to apply for that, I'm sorry, it's too late, but we give out four of those a year. So in a couple months, we will have another one. So in about two or three months, we will do another one. So you gotta be a student to join. We give out $1,000 and we also give out to the runner-up a free ground school. So you gotta check that out. It, don't worry it, if you didn't apply, it's not too late. Cause again, we do four of those years. So go check that out. And then if you're wondering, hey, did I win? If you haven't been contacted yet, there's a good chance you didn't, but you'll, what you'll wanna do is you want your email, you wanna check any social medias that you maybe put in your application. And then you can check our social medias and any emails from us and see if we have announced it yet. Now. I'm recording this early, so I don't know if I will have announced it by the morning of May 15th, which is when this is being released. I might announce it later on today. So it depends on when you're listening to this and whether or not the announcement has been made. So go check out those channels to see you know, if that announcement has been made. Okay, without further ado, let's get to the lessons. Lesson three, seatbelts and harnesses. All right, the use of restraint systems for crew members and passengers comes with rules as well. This is the reason on every commercial flight you are told to put on your seatbelts, and you're also told on how to put on your seatbelts. During takeoff and landing, as well as in route, each required crew member must be at the crew member duty station with a safety belt fastened. The only exceptions to this is when assistance from the station is necessary for operation of the aircraft or physiological need, which I guess flight attendants delivering food would fall under physiological needs. Furthermore, crew members during takeoff and landing must keep his or her shoulder harness fastened while at their duty station unless the harness makes him or her unable to perform duties or if the station has no harness. On the other hand, passengers are required to wear seat belts and harnesses during takeoff, landing, and taxiing. 
It is required that a pilot know these regulations on seatbelts and harnesses because in order to carry passengers, it is the pilot in command's responsibility during the pre-takeoff briefing to inform all passengers about the use of their seatbelts. So when you're on an airline cargo flight, the captain, they pass on that responsibility of educating the passengers to stewards and stewardess on the aircraft and they sort of monitor, they tell you how to put on the seatbelts, when you need to have the seatbelts on, that's the seatbelt sign, right? The seatbelt little diagram above your seat, the light that pops up when you need to have your seatbelt on. Essentially, you have to have it on during takeoff, landing, and taxing. Essentially, only in like cruise flight can that come off. So that's why you, when you climb up and then that seatbelt sign comes off, can you then like go to the bathroom and stuff like that? So there was a few different things we got to remember, right? We're, we have these ones for passengers that we as a pilot in command have to remember because if we take any passengers, we are that's our responsibility. And then also we are covered under pilot crew member. So we also have to remember those as well. So what I did in the online ground school is I made a just a little table, right? It's got, in the first column, it's got two rows. It's got crew members and passengers. And then in the columns to the right, it's got the different phases of flight. It's got takeoff, landing, in route, and taxi. So under takeoff uh, and crew member, the crew member has to have seatbelt and harness at duty station. Takeoff for passengers has to have seatbelt. Landing for crew members has to have seatbelt and harness at duty station. Landing for passengers is seatbelt. In route, so that's like, you know, cruise, flight for crew members, seatbelt when at duty station. So before it was seatbelt and harness at duty station, but in route, if they're at duty station, it's just the seatbelt. And then taxi crew members, they have no requirement. And then in route, I'm, I forgot in route for passengers. In route for passengers, there's no requirement. That's why you can get up and go to the bathroom. But if you're a crew member and you're at your station, you have to have your seatbelt on. And then taxi, crew members, there's no requirement. That's why, you know, during taxi, you can see, you know, the stewards and stewardess walking around, sort of doing stuff, prepping the plane, making sure everyone's got their seatbelts on and all that stuff. And then passengers have to have their seatbelt on. So for passengers, it's seatbelt during takeoff, landing, nothing in route, and then seatbelt for taxi. For crew members, it's seatbelt and harness at duty station for takeoff seatbelt and harness at duty station for landing, seatbelt at duty station for in route, and nothing for taxi. And this kind of little hearing this, you're probably like, holy cow, that's so much I have to remember. But this little table that I made really, really simplifies it and makes it a lot easier. So go ahead and check that out. All right, so let's move on to lesson four of section eight on right-of-way rules. When driving a car, the traffic signs, light signals, road markings, lane lines, and rules of the road determine who has the right-of-way in almost any scenario. Flying in the air doesn't have the luxury of all these visual cues, but it does have the luxury of three-dimensional space to avoid collisions. However, even with the luxury of this space, there is still a need for a well-understood system of right-of-ways. This is particularly important near busy airports. In fact, the most common area and time for aircraft accidents to occur is in the traffic pattern on a sunny day on a busy airport. Okay, so it's a sunny day, everyone's out there, everyone's flying, and human air happens. Okay, so that is the number one and the most common time for there to be accidents. So you gotta kind of look out for that stuff and you gotta know your right-of-way rules. So to do this, the FAA uses 
the type or category of aircraft plus the pilot's intentions to determine the following right-of-way rules. The first one is an aircraft in distress has a right-of-way over all other aircraft. Okay, so an aircraft is in distress. That's like an aircraft in an emergency, right? So you can hear this. There's a couple ways to determine whether an aircraft is in an emergency. You can kind of just visually see, you know, if there's flames coming off an aircraft, if it was hit by birds and it's wildly out of control, something like that, you can visually see. You can give that aircraft the right-of-way or you can hear the pilot on the radio calling for an emergency and then give them the right-of-way. So an aircraft in distress has the right-of-way over all other aircrafts. If they call an emergency or they call that they're in distress, they get the right-of-way. The next one is if two aircraft of the same category are converging, the aircraft to the right has the right-of-way. So here we have, let's say an aircraft is traveling from the south, traveling due north. And let's say you're in that aircraft. You're traveling from the south to due north, and then you have an aircraft traveling from the east due west, and they're about to converge at a point in space, right? So you have one traveling west, one traveling north. They're about to cross paths. Now, the aircraft to the right would have the right-of-way. So if you're in the aircraft traveling to the north, the aircraft to the right would be the one that is traveling from the east to the west. That is the aircraft to the right in this scenario. So they would have the right-of-way. You would have to slow down, descend something, give them the right-of-way at that altitude and that speed. Okay, the next rule is between aircraft of different categories, the following order, and this is based off maneuverability, determines the right-of-way. So it goes from least maneuverable to most maneuverable in terms of who has the right-of-way. So the least maneuverable has the most right-of-way, the most maneuverable has the least right-of-way. So when there are two aircraft of different categories are converging, the least maneuverable has a right-of-way. And here's the order. Balloon, glider, airship, parachute, weight shift control, airplane, and rotorcraft, aka helicopter. A mnemonic device to remember this that I came up with, you can come up with your own, but this is the one I came up with, is B-Gap War. B-Gap War, so B-G-A-P-W-A-R. That's the right away, that's how I remember, B-Gap War. So you got B, Balloon, G, Glider, A, Airship, P, Parachute, W, Weight Shift Control, A, Airplane, and R, Rotocraft. So if you just remember B-Gap War, and then you remember that it's from least maneuverable to most maneuverable, if you just remember those two facts, this is kind of like a way to hack remembering things, right? So if you remember those two facts, you can piece together the rest of it, right? So if you know, okay, it's B-gap war, and then it's least maneuverable to most maneuverable in terms of right-of-way. So you're like, okay, B, what could B be in terms of least maneuverable? Okay, it's got to be balloon, and then you go G... What's that? Okay, glider doesn't even have an engine, so it's not very maneuverable. A, could that be airplane? No, that's probably not airplane because airplane is pretty dang maneuverable. So that's probably airship. And then you continue down like that. So that's kind of a hack I use. I always use mnemonic devices when I'm studying for this type of stuff. They really, really help. You combine a mnemonic device with one other fact of how they come up with the rule or regulation, and you can usually piece it together in your head. All right, so let's move along to some more right-of-way rules. An aircraft towing something has a right-of-way over all other engine-driven aircraft. So even if it's any of those in the right-of-way rules, if you're towing something, it has a right-of-way over all other engine-driven aircraft. So engine-driven would not include balloon or glider, but engine-driven aircraft, uh, aircraft towing has a right-of-way over all of those. When pilots are converging head-on with another aircraft, they're instructed both to turn towards the right. So you're, again, we're back in our scenario, you're traveling from the south straight due north, and then you have an aircraft traveling from the north straight due south. Again, you're about to converge head on. You guys would both turn right 
And that means you would turn to the east, you're traveling to the north, a right turn turns you to the east, and they're traveling to the south, a right turn would turn them to the west. So that if you both turn right, both on the same page, you would go opposite directions. There are systems in more complex aircraft and commercial aircraft like TCAS, which actually, if the pilot does not do this, they will actually turn the aircraft to the right for the pilot and more advanced aircrafts. And they also have a bunch of warning systems and stuff like that for the pilot to do that, but then they even have it baked in where it'll do that where they both turn to the right because if both aircraft are can communicate with their TCAS systems and things like that and they both turn to the right, then we're safe. So turn to the right when you're converting head on. The next one, if an aircraft is overtaking another aircraft, the aircraft being overtaken has the right of way and the aircraft overtaking should pass on the right. So overtaking is like passing. So let's say you're behind a slow car, right? You're usually gonna pass the left. Think opposite with airplanes. If you're behind a slow plane and you're overtaking it, you wanna overtake it to the right and the aircraft being overtaken has the right of way. So you want to go around them, give them that airway, give them that altitude. You go around them, maneuver around them because you are faster than them. So, and then you wanna overtake them on the right, which is opposite of in a car where we pass on the left. The last one here is an aircraft landing has a right of way over an aircraft in flight, but this rule should not be taken advantage of in order to cut in line and land before another aircraft and is generally safe for aircraft that need to land or are already on their final approach. So aircraft landing has a right of way over an aircraft in flight, but you can't take advantage of this. So let's say you have an aircraft on a long final and you're on the downwind about to turn base and then final. So you kind of notice this, you're like, oh, I don't want to go behind really long final. So I'm just going to cut in front of them, say I'm landing, I have the right of way. You can't do that. Okay, you can't take advantage of this to land first. You got to obey the rules of the traffic pattern and all this stuff and not take advantage of that rule. But when an aircraft is landing, it has a right of way over an aircraft in flight. So if an aircraft is passing through the traffic pattern or something like that, for whatever reason, the aircraft landing would have the right of way in terms of these rules. All right, so that's it on lesson four of section eight on right-of-ways. Let's move on to lesson five, minimum safe altitudes. This is gonna be all about the very minimum altitude rules that no matter where you're flying, you have to obey by as determined by the FAA. But before we do that, let's take a quick break and then we'll get back into the lesson. Hi, this is Bree from Part-Time Pilot. There is no better way to wake up in the morning of a flight than with clear skies and a cup of hot, delicious coffee. And there is no better coffee than coffee straight from Nicaragua. And there is no better coffee for pilots than twin engine coffee. That's why I bought a custom pod for my Keurig and Nespresso machines and a coffee grinder just so that I could grind my own fresh Nicaraguan coffee beans from Twin Engine Coffee. It's so much better than those stupid K-cups or K-pods or whatever you call them. But right now you're probably like, why are you telling us about coffee? Well, it's because not only is it aviation-themed coffee straight from Nicaragua, but it's also coming from a great cause. Rather than taking all of the coffee beans out of Nicaragua to package and sell elsewhere, Twin Engine Coffee is headquartered in Nicaragua where they have created jobs for local community and have a mission to help reduce local poverty. So if you're a pilot and you like coffee, head over to TwinEngineCoffee.com PTP or with the link in the show notes to order fresh whole bean Nicaraguan coffee straight to your home today.
Okay, welcome back. Let's get back into it with lesson five of section eight on minimum safe altitudes. One thing that doesn't quite relate to rules while driving a car is the concept of minimum safe altitudes. How close can you whiz by a farmhouse in the country? How close can you get to skyscrapers, people in a field? Now, I'm not condoning this type of activity, but it might be, you might be at an airport that is close to some tall buildings and on your takeout climate, you might get kind of close to these buildings and you might wonder how close can I actually legally get to these buildings? Now, obviously you want to stay as far away from anything that might cause damage to buildings or people or anything like that as you possibly can and you want to be safe flyers, but there are some minimum rules that the FAA has laid out that you as a pilot have to abide by and know. And the answer depends on whether the area is considered congested or densely populated other than congested or anywhere. And let's describe what those different sort of terms mean when we say anywhere other than congested, densely populated, or congested. When flying over anywhere, meaning wherever you are flying, you must operate at an altitude where if a power unit fails, and for us that's our engine, an emergency landing can be made without undue hazard to any persons or property on the surface. So what does this mean? This means that let's say you are flying over a neighborhood, for example, right? If your engine fails, you need to be able to glide outside of this neighborhood to a field. You don't want to crash into the houses. So you have to be, you have to fly at an altitude that will allow you that glide distance, that best glide speed when your engine goes out to reach that field outside that neighborhood. That's essentially what that means. So you always got a plan for that. That's kind of the number one overarching rule. The next one is over congested areas. That refers to a city, town, settlement, or open air assembly of persons. You are required to fly a thousand feet above the highest obstacle within 2000 feet horizontal radius from that obstacle. So what that means is there's kind of some language in there that if you are within a 2000 foot radius of that obstacle, you have to be a thousand feet above it. So you can either basically stay 2,000 feet horizontal from it or more than 1,000 feet above it. And that refers, again, to a city, town, settlement, or open-air assembly of persons. Now, the third area is other than congested areas, which kind of fills in the gap from anywhere to congested areas. It adds that you may not fly lower than 500 feet above the surface unless you are over open water or sparsely populated areas. So in the cases of open water or sparsely populated areas, you may not fly closer than 500 feet to any person, vessel, vehicle, or structure. So to make sense of this all, well, actually, let me just stop right there and say what that last one meant. It's basically filling in the gap between congested and anywhere, and it's saying, well, there's some other areas, and we'll call those open water or sparsely populated areas. So if you are over open water or sparsely populated areas, you can fly lower than 500 feet. If you're not in over open water or sparsely populated areas, then the limit is 500 feet above the surface. But if you are over open water or sparsely populated area, you can go lower than that as long as you stay 500 feet from any person, vessel, vehicle, or structure. So if you're flying over the open water and there's no one in sight, you can fly as close to the water as you want legally. Now, I wouldn't recommend it, but you can. Now, if you were to come across a boat with some people on it, right, that would be a person, a vessel, vehicle, or structure, right? You have to be 500 feet away from that. So you'd have to, if you wanted to fly over it or by it, you have to fly by it by 500 feet or over it by 500 feet or both. And the same goes for if you're in a sparsely populated area, you're flying along some cornfields, right? And you're at 200 feet and then you see some guy on a tractor to fly over or around that guy, you got to be 500 feet away from that vehicle 
and person, right? Okay, so to make sense of all of this, a student pilot should remember that at all times, they must be at an altitude where they can perform an emergency landing without undue hazard to any persons or property, and they must be 500 feet in any direction from a person, vessel, vehicle, or structure, unless they are over a city, town, settlement, or open air assembly of persons, then they must fly 1,000 feet above when within 2,000 feet horizontal radius from any persons or property. Now, okay, so that's kind of combining all three right there saying, you know, the most restrictive is when you're in congested area, city, town, settlement, or open air assembly of persons. Then you got that either 1,000 feet above or 2,000 feet away. So if you're within 2,000 feet away, horizontal distance, then you got to be 1,000 feet above any persons or property. And then if you're not in sort of those congested areas, then it's 500 feet from any person, vessel, vehicle, or structure. And then anywhere, you got to be able to perform an emergency landing without hazard to any persons or property. And then finally, if those are all met, then you can fly lower than 500 feet in open water or sparsely populated areas as long as, again, you meet all those other ones. Now, that's a lot to kind of remember. The visual aids will really help with this. I have a video that I made. I'll put that in the show notes. And also in the ground school, we have a nice visual aid here. It shows a an aircraft flying over the open water, not near any vehicle, vessel, structure, or person. So it's flying lower than 500 feet. Then it's got one that's over the open water, but it's flying over a boat. So it's got to be 500 feet away. Then we got an aircraft that's flying over an assembly of people on a hill and near some buildings. So it's got to be, you know, either 2000 feet or more away from those buildings and or a thousand feet above them or same goes for the people. And then we have an aircraft with its engine on fire, you know, so it's got to come in and land between all this stuff, right? Between this house, between these buildings, between these people. Gotta find somewhere safely to land. So it's gotta be at an altitude such that it can do that. And then it's got, you know, a sparsely populated area where if you're not near a vehicle, vessel, or structure, like a car or a little house, for example, or a hut or something, then you can fly less than 500 feet. But if you are, then again, just like the open water, you gotta fly over 500 feet. So that's all kind of depicted in this one image. It's nice. And then the video is gonna help you guys out with that as well. All right, so that has been episode number 42, I believe, of the Audio Ground School podcast. Thank you guys for listening. If you guys have listened to all episodes, you're just rocking it, and I really appreciate the support. One last thing I'll say, if you haven't subscribed on whatever app you're listening to, it really helps us out, get found by the app you know when you search in the when people search in the app it really helps us get found when we have more subscribers i saw something crazy in our stats that like 70 percent of the people that listen are not actually subscribed so i know that i i love subscribing to the podcast i listen to regularly because it automatically downloads them on my phone so if i go on like a flight or something where i don't have internet service enough to download the episodes i'll have at least a couple episodes already on my phone that i can just listen to so it prepares you in case you forget to download or something like that but also you can turn that feature off if you don't want them to download as well at least on my phone and then finally like it notifies you of new episodes sometimes we'll do some bonus episodes stuff like that like when we announce scholarships if you're subscribed you'll get notified of that all right so in the next episode we're going to continue on limitations and more regulations section eight we're going to talk about atc clearance and compliance temporary flight restrictions and then we might get into fuel requirements or special vfr so i will talk to you guys next week take it easy Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after 
three years, five instructors, and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times. And then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations. If we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time, fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft and when this happens if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, at, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gain is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft they start making mistakes and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again and they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family they finally say you know what this has to stop we can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress you know and they end up quitting now so how do we avoid that well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. And when I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid 
being boring. You want to avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic. Again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read. So for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices. Have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos. Or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on online ground school, and we'll see you inside the online ground school. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.